Hi, everybody. It's David Reardon, and I'm talking to my good friend, Andrew Holacek, today, and we're going to be talking about dream yoga. So, Andrew, welcome. Yeah, it's nice to be with you, David. So, when we think about contemplative practice, mm -hmm. right, anybody that has done mindfulness practice or prayer or whatever form, you know, and we're looking, we're waking up, as we would say, mm -hmm. to a larger self, right? What I find so interesting about your dream yoga offering is that you're actually pointing to a part of our lives that we rarely pay attention yeah. to, particularly in the Western world. I mean, what do we do? We sleep for right. six, seven, eight hours a day and just say, oh, that's just that. Now I'm going to get back to the real world. But as you point out, and you actually use this phrase, is that waking up to your dreams is actually waking up to your life. For so sure. let's just start there. What do you mean by that? Yeah, well, I mean, you already had on a couple of really rich points, David. One is that, you know, we do spend up to a third of our lives lost in the oblivion of um, dark, non-lucid sleep and dream. And it, it's, it's completely kind of resonant with the Western view of consciousness, which is on, off, black, white, yes, no. You know, you're either awake or asleep, you're dead or alive. And um, I like to think of it as a Western light switch model. You know, it's on, off, on, off. But what these nocturnal practices, which dream yoga is one, sleep yoga is the other, um, what they do is they replace the light switch with the dimmer model, which means it's not on, off, yes, no, black, white, it's gross to subtle to very subtle. And so um, what these nocturnal practices do, and this is why it's so resonant with integral theory and integral practice, is dream yoga and sleep yoga, its cousin, allow us to install a kind of dimmer of the mind so that we can, in fact, maintain lucidity, i.e. awareness. Lucidity is just a code word for awareness. A lucid dream is an aware dream. And we can then start to cultivate a more sophisticated relationship to our, our mind and the reality that is experienced in these subtle states. And what's really cool about this stuff is that um, using what scientists call bi-directionality, um, kind of this two-way street model, that what you do at night with these practices doesn't remain under the blanket, so to speak. The really cool thing about this is that you open up this bi-directional process by which the insights that you glean from your exploration of mind in the nighttime space then you can bring those back into daytime um, waking reality. And so what, what therefore develops is this really wonderful process of cross-pollination where insights from the day are transplanted into the night. This is in fact how we bring about lucidity using induction methods and during the day. And then the insights you glean through your lucid experiences at night kind of spiral back in to create this kind of virtuous circle, this positive feedback loop where information is flowing and insights are flowing in, in, in both directions. And so as you suggested, you know, the whole idea behind uh, lucid dreaming, which of course is just a subset of dream yoga, is that lucid dreaming leads to lucid living. Aware dreams help us wake up to the nature of mind and reality as it expresses itself really throughout the entire spectrum of consciousness. Um, and that's what I think is terribly exciting. And I have one, one last analogy here, if I might. I was recently watching a fascinating NOVA uh, uh, program on the Hubble Space Telescope. And it was just so profound to me because the, inter the kind of the connection between inner space and outer space is a very compelling one. And, and what they talked about was they wanted to determine how many stars there were in the, in the known universe. And so what they did was they, they took the focus of the Hubble Space Telescope 
And through a, a distance about, they said, the size of a, a drinking straw, they held this thing out into dark, empty space where there was nothing, just nothing, black nothing. And they held that there, focused open for 10 days. And every day as they held that gaze there, points of light started to emerge. And after 10 days, a mere 10 days, in this you know, otherwise nothingness of, of dark, empty space, 10,000 points of light appeared, each of which was an entire galaxy, each of which contains at least 100 billion stars. It's just such a mind blower. And so I think this is a fantastic analogy of how, you know, if we look, the untrained, unaided, uninstrumented eye looks into dark nothingness, sees nothing. But with a trained focus eye, like the inner Hubble of these space, uh, of these uh, nocturnal meditations, you learn how to keep that inner gaze open, and all of a sudden, all these inner points of light start to come out. And an entire universe starts to arise from within. It's always been there. You know, those galaxies have always been there. We've just never seen them before. And in exactly the same way, these nocturnal practices allow us to focus the mind open, I'm mean, like dilate consciousness, so that we start to see strata of um, mind that have always been there, but have otherwise been lost in the darkness and the oblivion of, of sleep. And this is what I like about, because when you Google lucid dreaming or something, I mean, there's a lot of people who do different pieces of it, but your particular offering around this combines these two things. So uh, our most everybody knows you're a skilled Tibetan teacher. So you bring what is thousands of years of practice of which this comes out of. And yet you always have this interest in Western science. Yeah. about What does it have to say? And, and really just the last 40 years on the science side that we've actually been looking at you know, what actually happens in right. these sleep states and all the rest of it. So that's what I love about this particular offering from mm -hmm. you is that it combines both. But why don't you say a little bit about how that informs you? Oh, my goodness. Both the ancient and yeah. the Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, absolutely. You know, the, the great uh, wisdom traditions have put forth these kind of uh, technologies. And th they're applicable, I would say, um, more so towards... Um, Eastern minds, Eastern kind of ways of looking at reality. But, you know, we are in the West, whether we know it or not, whether it's lucid to us or not, we are deeply embedded in a scientific and psychological paradigm structure. And so, to me, the great contributions from the West, the science behind stages of sleep, understanding the actual um, kind of cycles, the periodicity of the types of phases we go through, you know, the cycles of sleep we have, allows us to very succinctly target certain times of the night where we can bring about this lucidity. Understanding brainwave patterns, understanding some of the, the pharmacological agents you can use. You know, there's the incredible contribution of the West conjoined with this ancient body of teachings from the East creates, again, it's perfect with, within integral theory, this broad spectrum systemic integral approach to um, basically understanding how to become lucid and also conversely what it is that makes us so non-lucid and so i love to join the knowledge of the west with the wisdom of the east to bring this you know all the resources we have to bear into this project of waking up because we have been asleep spiritually for a very long time and uh, the more tools the more skillful means we can bring to bear to rouse us from our individual and collective slumber, the better off we're going to be. And, and 
since lucid dreaming was proven in the 1970s by a number of scientists, it's been uh, resubstantiated countless times in sleep laboratories. There are now scientists that are actually trying to prove lucidity in deep dreamless sleep, which is a more difficult um, endeavor. This goes a long way in terms of bringing these practices into the Western milieu so that people say, ah, there's some scientific backing here. Lucid dreaming just isn't mumbo jumbo. The potential for lucid sleep, maintaining full awareness in the deep dreamless sleep, this is not metaphysical mumbo jumbo. In fact, just somewhat recently, um, studies have shown that what are called gamma oscillations, high, very high frequency brain waves that have been detected in really advanced meditators that have like 60,000 hours of practice that maintain um, a, a kind of tacit awareness, a, a kind of a subtle state of awareness or lucidity through all states of consciousness. Um, and in fact, that is one of the charters of these nocturnal meditations altogether, is to maintain awareness in all states, realize the fundamental equivalence of all these different states, um, and therefore draw on our understanding and descriptions of mind and reality from all three dimensions, not just what we have in this kind of wake-centric model, which is where everything we deem about mind and reality is gleamed from the so-called waking state, which paradoxically from the, Western, from the Eastern spiritual traditions is the state with the least malleability, the least potential for spiritual transforma transformation because it's the most reified, it's the most concretized. Um, and so just to toss this in rather quickly, the deep dreamless sleep <clears throat> state and dreams, if they're lucid, actually have more potentials for spiritual um, and psychological transformation than the so-called waking state, if we can, in fact, maintain lucidity in those states. So let me just follow up on that. Sure. So, because um, that was one of the points I thought when we talked about this before that you made that I just want to make sure that I understand. So in a certain sense, this, this notion that within <clears throat> there are certain things that happen there versus a waking state like we are now, right? So is it... When you say it has the potential in that if you can get into a lucid mm -hmm. thing of actually um, increased development, yes. way to say it, as opposed to the relative world, is that because of the distractions of the relative world? And then actually, actually as you move into the subtle realms or even the causal realms in your, in your dreams, I mean, basically, there's nothing else distracting you. I mean, yes. it's not running in, the TV is gone, right. whatever. So is that what that's you one, That's a really interesting point, David, because that's certainly one aspect of it. Um, when the lights go off um, and we're no longer seduced by artificial light in whatever manifestation it might take, distractions um, are reduced. And that also can bring about a heightened level of awareness. It's like um, Sagar Rinpoche once said, you know, to end distraction is to end samsara. So what you're saying is exactly spot on. That's one dimension. The second is, according to Eastern views of mind, this outer um, manifestation of mind, which you can't equate with brain at this gross level, this is, uh, according to these Eastern ways of looking at mind, the outermost levels of the developmental flowering of the mind. So the farther down you go from waking consciousness to dreaming consciousness to the deep dreamless state, in a certain sense, the more real things get. It's like Ramana Maharshi once said so famously, you know, that which does not exist in deep dreamless sleep is not real. So that, that's why also why in the Hindu tradition, the deep dreamless state is called causal consciousness. So if that is in fact the case, if it is in fact that from the formlessness of the dream state arises uh, the dream 
from the formlessness of the dreamless state arises the dream. From that further yet arises so-called waking reality. If that is in fact the case, and my experience I would say does bear this out, then if you start to work with these deeper levels of mind, you're going to have a greater potential of affecting the outer expressions of that mind. And so the analogy I frequently use is that with, with dream yoga, let alone sleep yoga, you're working with the tectonic plates of your experience. The subconscious mind, the unconscious mind, and then the deepest. And so, um, just like with hypnosis, which is uh, somewhat analogous to it, you know, what you do in the hypnotic state can have vast surface implications, repercussions, and implications. So as you shift these tectonic plates with these practices, you can affect and even accelerate um, surface implications, applications of that state. And in some of the tantras, uh, the Mahamaya Tantra and others, allegedly it is said that the practices that one can accomplish in the dream state can be up to nine times more transformative than what we do in the so-called waking state. Because in fact, you're working, mixing my metaphors, you're working with the roots of your experience. Not the leaves, not the branches, not the trunk, not psychology, not even standard meditation. You're working with the roots of your experience. And so what you do down there can have very profound effects up here. And uh, it's one of the reasons I'm so jazzed about this stuff because I've been playing, practicing with these things for decades now, probably some 40 years. And um, you know, the insights I've been able to glean from my own practice and experience have radically transformed my life. And one final analogy here is it's not too dissimilar to what happens when someone has a near-death experience. You know, people can come out of one, one near-death experience, and it's a game changer. It changes the entire trajectory of their life because they know they've touched into something so foundational, so real, that it just shifts everything on the surface of life. And so, you know, you don't have to have a near-death experience over and over, you just need one. If you have one um, lucid sleep experience, one state of dissolving into the uh, uh, dreamless state with complete lucidity, you come up from that space, just like a near-death experience, and it changes everything. And so that's why, um, you know, not to overhype it, to overmarket, um, the practice, I think the potentialities when they're really understood and experienced are, are really transformative. And I would argue that uh, lucid dreaming, when the induction methods are refined, really could represent the education or the pedagogy of the future. So the analogy I often use, it's like night, night school. You know, it's like going into, uh, uh, adding a night shift, going into night school every night and taking advantage of up to a third of our lives, you know, extending your life by up to a third by maintaining lucidity, which the great spiritual masters, by the way, they don't, you know, the body may lie down to go to sleep, but the mind doesn't turn off. It just goes from gross to subtle to very subtle. And so you can do your meditations. You don't have time to practice during the day. Well, now you can practice at night. Right. Got it. So I love the night shift piece. That's, that's a really nice analogy about that. But sleep, at, at, in general, particularly in the Western culture, particularly as we get older, those boomers in the audience like me, um, sleep becomes an issue. I mean, yeah. it, because we're so jazzed up during the day, whether it's high pressure or there's just lots of electronic stuff on, right? Like your television or your phone or whatever. There's just a lot. And I find 
you know, oftentimes if I don't start winding down, if I'm just going right from that state to hitting the pillow, I'm staring at the ceiling and losing sleep, right? So what would you say? I mean, so somebody was listening to this and saying, all right, this all sounds great, but it also sounds like a lot of work, Mm. Andrew. And is that, does that mean that if I actually Mm -hmm. take this on, that I'm actually going to affect the sleep that I need just to rest? I mean, and then to get ready for the next day? Yeah, yeah. Good question. So uh, again, this is why it's so helpful to understand sleep cycles. So if you're doing classic dream yoga, um, which is really working with your dreams, obviously, we don't dream that much during the first part of the night. The first part of the night is mostly what's called non-REM sleep. We, we generally dream in REM sleep. And so in non-REM sleep, that's the deep restorative sleep. Growth hormones released, all the cellular repair takes place, all the kind of biological necessities of sleep take place in this non-REM period. And so for, uh, for the first, you know, really 70, 80% of the night, we're mostly in this restorative phase. You don't touch that. That's a, that literally the do not disturb sign is still up. And so for people who, who want to engage in lucid dreaming, dream yoga, you work with prime time dream time, which is the last one or two hours before you would normally wake up. And here there's a number of ways to do it. In fact, one of the most, I can toss this in very briefly, one of the most effective techniques shown to induce or increase the chances of lucidity up to 2,000%, that's a 20-fold increase, is what's called the wake and back to bed method, where you get up an hour to two hours before you would normally get up, stay up for 15, 20 minutes, don't go to your electronic adjectory, do your little meditations or whatever and go back to sleep. Just by interrupting that last phase of sleep when you're mostly in REM and mostly dreaming anyway, you can increase your lucidity dramatically. So the idea is that you, you will not um, lose your biological rest. Um, the only thing that's going to be interrupted is the egoic um, trajectory. You know, kind of the, you're going to interrupt the, uh, kind of the, uh, the egoic um, MO. And so for people who are interested in this, um, and again, the only time I really ramp it up and interrupt my sleep throughout the night is when I'm doing dream yoga retreats. I go away for a week. I work with blending day and night, but during the course of a normal night's sleep, you start to work with your own personal characteristics, your own idiosyncrasies. You start to see more how you actually go through the sleep cycles, what works for you. Um, And playing with those last two hours before you'll normally wake up, giving yourself maybe a little bit of extra time, a half hour, hour if you really um, need it to catch up a little bit, it's not that terribly disruptive. And so even when I'm not doing the wake and back to bed method, which for me usually means I just have to go to the bathroom, that's enough for me to do the wake and back to bed method. Even if I don't do that, I will still, by the induction methods I do, um, kind of target those last few hours of the night. And really, again, in working with these practices for some four decades, it definitely has not affected my ability to operate during the day. And that's important to know because otherwise it's just like you're saying, you know, I need to check out, I need to get my rest. I don't need more interruptions in this deep restorative sleep. Yeah. So. Yeah. so let's um, let's look for a quick example here because we keep talking about it in general. So I will say in my dreams when I remember them, with, um, which is not having trained with you, but just when I remember mm-hmm. them. Um, you know, there are all kinds of things come up, but one of the things that I uh, am most impressed with the, with the subtle realm is that you lose some of the limitations. You know, you oh, don't yeah. have the same limitations. Yeah. So, for instance, when I was younger, I was, you know, made records and sang and all that. In the subtle realm, 
I still have absolutely the perfect voice. Anything <laughs> that I can imagine, I can hit, right? Which I never yeah. could in real life anyway. Right. I wake up from those dreams, whether they happen for a second or five minutes, laughing almost, because it is just so yeah. much fun to right. create without the limitations That's of right. the gross realm, right? So, and you've also mentioned, we also see, you know, in the culture in general around all kinds of performance stuff, like sports, mm -hmm. as an example, like we see in the Olympics, we just saw this, where you'll see somebody at the top of the hill right. and they're got yeah. their eyes closed yeah. and you can see them patterning yeah. their motions That's and right. they're going through some sort of visualization process. So it is the course yep. and they're just let it, then now they're going to hopefully just let their body go and not think about it and just let the muscle memory and all of that. But yes. So... Um, and also you've mentioned, uh, you know, people getting ready for presentations, whatever. Right. So can, I mean, I know there are a lot of things that you can do with it, but can you use, can you give me one example of something? Oh my says, gosh. All right, great. I'm, I'm now more managing this realm that I just kind of popped into and out crazy, you know, in my dreams and things happen and all. Now I'm managing it more. What actually is the opportunity for there, you know, for me to do it? Do I really focus on one thing or yeah. sort of what, whatever comes up? Yeah, boy, that's a huge question, David. Yeah. Um, no, no, it's great. You know, it, it, it is like one of the big questions, like, okay, well, why should I do this? Well, the physical, physical, psychological, and spiritual benefits behind lucid dreaming and dream yoga are uh, really quite literally off the charts. You almost, it's almost too good to be true. And as I'm doing more research for, for books that I'm writing now about this topic, I have to come out and shake my head and go, this is like unbelievable. So just to give you a couple of examples, and there are so many here, you mentioned the sports thing. Um, and let me backpedal just a second to give uh, our listeners a, a, an idea of why this is so transformative. Um, when you're working with your mind, whether it's visual, visualization, like you mentioned with the athletes, whether it's conscious imagination, like for instance, Arthur Rubinstein, I'm a pianist, so I really relate to him. He was famous for his ability to literally visualize during the day, visualize being at the keyboard and, and rehearsing an entire composition and then actually performing it without ever having gone to the physical piano. So through the power of his imagination, he was able to increase his ability to uh, perform. And <clears throat> the way this works, both in conscious visualization, imagination, and most powerfully in lucid dreaming, is, as you probably know, through the tenets of, of neuroplasticity, yes? That what you do with your mind, through visualization or dreaming, changes your brain. And that also, by the way, affects and changes your body. So, for instance, if you're doing, I mean, I don't know why anybody would do this, but if you're doing a math problem in your dreams, your left hemisphere is activated, just as if you were doing it in waking life. If you're playing the violin in your dreams, your right hemisphere is activated just as if you were doing it in life. The brain can't really tell the difference between something that is physically experienced, visualized, or dreamt. So right there, that alone is, is kind of a game changer. And so what happens, and there's a, there's a, I can direct our listeners to a very interesting YouTube video um, that shows a, a German dream researcher with a very skilled lucid dreamer um, showing how he learned the, uh, to play or enhance his ability to play the ukulele within the context of his dreams, and also learned how to enhance certain physical movements and swimming through his lucid dreams. Um, and so those are just a few of the countless examples that you can do. I've used these, I'm a pianist, and again, I've been doing these practices for some 40 years. 
um, in really long, lucid, hyper, sometimes even hyper-lucid dreams. I will sit with full lucidity um, at my keyboard, and just a couple weeks ago, I played the entire second movement, for those of you who are, are um, pianists of the Beethoven um, Piano Sonata Opus 27 number um, one, I played the entire second movement and was practicing it within the context of my dream. Um, and so with some practice, it's, you know, I'm not special. Anybody who engages in these practices can do this. Um, and so therefore, you know, again, it's like this night shift thing, what you do, and by the way, it, it, when you're doing this, you're not losing your, your rest. Your mind is, the, the EMG, EEG activities in, in the sleep and dream state are more varied and more active than they are during the day. So when I'm doing this in a lucid dream, I am not affecting my rest. I mean, I'm dreaming anyway, now I'm just dreaming consciously. So that's just one example. You can use it to work with nightmares and resolve nightmares. Integrating um, <clears throat> disenfranchised, dis, you know, fragmented, disintegrated aspects of your being. You can bring those into harmony. You can work with anticipatory grief. You can process unresolved interpersonal issues. And this is worth a very brief interjection, David, where if you think about when you're having an issue uh, in a relationship, for instance, and you go to see a therapist, the person that you're having the issue with doesn't have to be with you. They only have to appear to you phenomenally, right, in your mind to, to work to resolve that issue. And so in a very similar way, and again, I've done this personally, you can work out unfinished business, both with um, people that are alive that you're currently, have, currently having issues with, and also process undigested experience even with someone who has died, because the death may be the end of a body, it's not the end of a relationship. So you can work to purify, process, integrate, harmonize, and heal um, all kinds of um, psychological issues with others, because again, the person doesn't have to be there physically. You can do role play in the context of your dream. You can resolve all kinds of other issues. And this is just literally just scratching the surface of what is um, available to you in that uh, kind of context of lucid dreaming. So people are watching this and they're probably going, all right, so I want to go do this, mm -hmm. right? So whether they do it um, with one of your web courses or whether they come, you do live workshops too, mm -hmm. or people do that. But there's also this thing about, and particularly in, in meditation circles, with this sort of performance anxiety. Yeah, right. Those people go through, you go, right. what if, yeah, it sounds great, right. but what, what if I can't do right. it? And you go, do what? Well, do whatever he's talking about. I mean, I guess I'm doing whatever. So one of the things that you had said to me, which I, I uh, was struck by, was that, that in the course of coming to work with you, that there are these layers mm -hmm. of value. It isn't mm -hmm. just like, okay, you're going to be here, not able to do any of this, and click, you're going to be all the way down into, you know, full lucid mode, that there right. were all these yes. layers in between. Can you talk about sort of yeah. that, um, sort of that engagement process, I guess, is what I'm, I'm, I'm after. Yeah, wonderful. Wonderful questions, David. Yeah, I think what you're saying is also analogous to the types of lucid dreams themselves. So, you know, to kind of bring that into a resonance with that, you know, lucid dreams go from barely lucid to full-blown hyper-lucid, where the dream appears more real than this. You wake up from that and this appears to be the dream. They go from dreamlets, which can be three, four, five seconds of lucidity in the, what's called the hypnagogic state, just as you're descending into sleep. You can have these really small hiccups of lucidity, all the way to lucid dreams that can last over an hour. So just as you were suggesting, you have this incredible bandwidth from 
um, barely to super. And so in exactly the same way, when people engage in these nocturnal practices, at least my approach to this is the bandwidth, the scope is so much more than just the target of having a, a lucid dream. It's all about changing the relationship to the way mind expresses itself in sleep and dream. So it's a much larger scope. It will change the way you fall asleep. It will change the way you wake up. It will change the way you relate to insomnia because you're altering the relationship to the mind as it expresses itself in these subtle states. And so your question is a really good one, David, because it's very easy to hype this material. I mean, the marketing is, it's easy to market. It's sexy, it sells, it's like it promises the future. But lucid dreams are not that easy to accomplish at the outset simply because, and this is what I'm researching and writing about now, simply because we're so inculcated, we're so non-lucid, we're, we're brought up in a non-lucid culture, we live in a non-lucid world, we practice non-lucidity all the time. And so having these incredibly special dreams is not that easy for someone who is so deeply embedded in non-lucidity. And so therefore the trajectory I take with these practices, again using the kind of the stealth help or the code word of lucidity being associated with awareness, when you're working with lucid dreaming, which is the platform for all these nocturnal practices, you're working with awareness. A lucid dream is an aware dream. And so whether you know it or not, whether you're lucid or conscious to it or not, even the attempt to bring about lucidity cultivates heightened awareness. So if there's one curative agent, and, and I would argue this, for all psycho-spiritual pathology, one curative agent, I would say that it's awareness. Awareness is curative. And so whether you know it or not, and this is, I love this idea of stealth help, there's more going on here than meets the untrained eye. Whether you know it or not, even by engaging, attempting to have these dreams, you are in fact cultivating your awareness. You're starting to stretch. This is kind of the yoga, the colloquial application of the yoga end. You're stretching the conscious mind into previously unconscious domains, whether you know it or not. And so then what eventually happens through the, the pure laws of causality, or if you like Eastern terminology, the pure mechanics of karma, habit, sooner or later you will start to notice a different relationship to your dreams altogether. Just like the analogy I used of, of finding galaxies, you know, points of light start to appear. Well, in this spectrum, the points of light would be, okay, I'm remembering my dreams more than I used to. Oh, there's the first point of light. I, I wasn't able to do that previously. Oh my gosh, I had my first lucid dream. It only lasted five seconds, but there it was. That's another point of light. Oh my gosh, I had a lucid dream that lasted five minutes or whatever. You keep your gaze there, the lights, points of light start to appear, they start to unfold. And eventually, through the pure laws of physics, the pure laws of causality, um, on one level, yes, there is some magic here. There are some magic induction techniques, but a large part of this process is, is really quite mechanical. It's like, you want to have lucid dreams during the night? You practice certain lucid techniques during the day. It's that simple. And sooner or later, again, conjoining the East and the West, science and spirit, non-lucidity eventually doesn't stand a chance if you understand what makes us so non-lucid and then you bring about the antidotes to bring about lucidity. So it's a really great question, David, that even if people don't have lucid dreams initially, they will start to alter the way they relate to the darkness of their own mind. 
And darkness, again, is another code word. Yeah, darkness is a code word for ignorance or for the unconscious. And so you're starting to bring unconscious processes into the light of consciousness. And as psychologists ever since Freud will tell you, it really is backstage that runs on stage. The unconscious mind dictates the vast majority of so-called conscious experience. And so what we're doing with these practices is we are in fact bringing light, lucidity, into these previously dark domains as a way to illuminate them, to bring them into conscious awareness. And then also, as I mentioned earlier, using these tenets of bidirectionality, then you take those same lights and you bring them into the day. And so, again, mixing my metaphors, it's like you're installing all these really cool pop-ups, right? You know, during the day with your induction methods, you're installing these pop-ups. They will ping into your unconscious mind when you're dreaming. Oh, there's a pop-up. Holy crap, I must be dreaming. You're lucid, instantly lucid. That's the really good news about lucidity is that it just takes one flash of recognition and bang, you're in. And then you do your little lucid dreaming, dream yoga practices, and whether you know it or not, especially with dream yoga, you do know it because you're doing it intentionally. You're now installing pop-ups in your deep unconscious mind because you're lucid to what's going on. And then you come out and then you'll notice during the day. Here's a, he'll give you a very practical example. You'll notice during the day, a pop-up will occur to you in the middle of, of for instance, let's say you're having a, a great emotional upheaval, right? Which, you know, these days we uh, have a lot of emotional upheavals. And being non-lucid to an emotional upheaval means you take the contents of that upheaval to be so bloody real, so solid, you suffer in direct proportion to that, you know, the word is reification, and you get swept away on this emotional upheaval, you go non-lucid to the emotional upheaval, you've lost it. But with these practices, and I, I, I'm telling you this is the way it works, you install the pop-up in the night by doing certain practices. You'll be in the middle or the start of an emotional upheaval during the day. Something from your nighttime practice will pop up, ping into your awareness to say, hey, wait a second. This expression of my mind is no more solid than what I experienced last night in this dream. This experience during the day is just as flexible, fluid, and malleable as that dream was last night. I don't have to take this so bloody seriously. And so as Tenzin Wangyal Rinpoche says so beautifully, you know, in many ways it's like the summary statement of the practice, is uh, you know, with dream yoga, you come to the conclusion that this is a dream, I am free, I can change. That's no small thing. So the insights you have during the day come up, during the night come up, they ping into your awareness during the day, they wake you up to the fact that you don't have to take the contents of your mind day or night so bloody seriously. They're still there. The appearance is still there. The energy is still there. The emotion is still there. But now you're lucid to it. You're awake to it. You're conscious of it. And so instead of being held captive by the dictates of non-lucidity of the unconscious mind, now you have a choice. Prisoners don't have a choice. Prisoners are stuck in the trap of non-lucidity. So now the emotion comes up. Let's say passion comes up. You say, hey, I want to go with this passion. Okay, you have a choice. I'm going to go lucidly. I'm going to capitulate to this passion, right? Or you can say, well, you know, wait a second. I, you know, I've seen this movie before. Maybe the end of this dream isn't as good as I think. Now you're bringing awareness to this expression of mind, an awareness that was planted in the dream state. And so I emphasize this so much because it's so much more 
than just game playing. It's more than just a nighttime video game. You are exploring the nature of mind and reality with these practices and altering your relationship to both. So we talked about your approach being both Eastern and Western in terms of science. And certainly one thing that we see in the Western world of technology, yeah. right, is this um, is virtual reality. Yeah. And we all now see there's not a commercial that goes by on television that, <laughs> that, that somebody doesn't have the goggles on looking at something. And, you know, we all go, yeah, all right, if you've tried it, you kind of know that. So that's interesting. I mean, in a certain sense that what's happening there in media is that we, you know, late 80s, 90s, we moved from this notion of linear storytelling, which would be movies and television, into interactive, which meant video games, it meant interactive movies, it meant education, where you were literally a participant. So right. we, we saw the difference between watching and now making some choices within this thing in yeah. terms of how it related to people. VR, yeah. like you and I have talked about, yeah. is a whole nother level of immersive yeah. experience. And when it's good, and you and I have both had <laughs> this, right. this uh, experience, uh, it, it, the, the phrase that we use is your brain doesn't know the difference. Yeah. Yeah. So in some of the research that you're doing, right. Jordan, um, you use the classic walk the plank thing. Right. And if anybody, <clears throat> and we, we showed this at the conference, people even watching it on the screen right. got queasy <clears throat> if they had any notion of heights and you're standing, right? And you know you're in a virtual world, but your brain goes, no, 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 we're right. in danger here. So, so, um, so it's interesting. It's an, and it's a medium that we're just starting to, to move into. But your interest in that, in terms of how it connects to dream yoga, can you talk a little bit about Oh, that? yeah. Geez, again, these are fantastic questions. They just have so many directions we can go on. Yeah, the, the relationship between cyberspace and cognitive space is very interesting. Um, and there's so many things to talk about. One is at the deepest levels, one can use both VR and lucid dreaming as a way to explore the nature of reality altogether. Um, because one of the things that, that kind of characterizes both lucid dreaming, um, and you could even say in a, a non-lucid dream in VR, is exactly what you're talking about, the level of immersion. That's what in fact brings about the sense of reality. And so when people get lost in VR, just like they get lost in a non-lucid dream, it's because they're taking what they're experiencing at face value, they're taking it to be real. They're, you know, the level of immersion in this case is, is, a, is really a level of non-lucidity. That's what brings about the sense of reality. That's why they call it virtual reality. And so in the deepest ways, what um, Dr. Kuali and I, uh, the professor and the cognitive scientist that I've been working with and writing some papers on are exploring, is in fact how you can use the VR experience conjoined with the lucid dreaming experience to help us understand the nature of reality altogether. Um, because again, when you're in a non-lucid dream, you think what you're experiencing is real. You're totally sucked into it. It's literally called a swept up continuum by some cognitive scientist. You're so sucked into it, that's what creates the sense of reality. Just like, you know, people haven't experienced VR yet, it's like being on the front row of a really powerful movie. You know, you just get so sucked into it, you're lost in it, you take it to be real, you laugh, you cry, you're affected. VR has even more immersive potentials because it's more in your face, right? And as I talked about in the conference, what's even more in your face, in fact, on this side of your face, is that exact same phenomenology of immersion taking place as we get lost in the contents of our own mind, thought, emotion, dream. 
And so by working with, with lucid dreams, by working with VR, we're exploring this process. We're exploring this mechanism, this phenomenology, as a way to gain insights from one medium to the other. Um, and so then it can be used. This immersion is not always bad. I mean, immersion can be used as a way to really facilitate education. And this is like, you know, when Deepak Chopra allegedly took off his VR goggles from the very first time, he said, this is going to change the world. I mean, that's the potential here. Um, it has to do with how information is retained when something is experienced, i.e. through an immersive medium, versus whether it's read or heard or whatever. We retain, the more immersive the experience is, the more we retain information. And so in exactly the same way, and the parallels between lucid dreaming and VR are really quite compelling, and we're really exploring this now. If we can harness these technologies, inner and outer, as a way to work with this property of immersion for educational purposes, for psychological transformation as a second step, for spiritual transformation as yet a third step, then you're taking something that can otherwise, and as we both know, can go so rapidly down the rabbit hole towards perversion. I mean, the analogy I use with VR, somewhat akin to, to lucid dreaming, is it's like a stem cell, you know? Depending on the type of environment that you put this medium, this, this uh, technology, this stem cell will either grow into a tumor, pornography, I mean, just think of where it can go. It's already going there. Or you can grow healthy tissue. So we and, and some other sensitive, I think, um, researchers are trying to grow this stem cell technology into healthy tissue. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the sky's the limit here. So much is unknown. So much is, remains an open question. But for those people who have experienced um, VR and have experienced lucid dreams, the, the, the relationship between the two is very profound. And the more time you spend in VR, the more it becomes really dreamlike. And, and I'll end with this, David. For me, one of the most uh, transformative parts of the whole VR experience, just like with hyperlucid dreams, the most transformative part for me is when I spend an hour or two in VR and I take those VR goggles off, to me, the point of transformation is right then. When I take those puppies off and I look at this, I go, how fundamentally different is this from what I just experienced? And so I can use my experience in virtual reality to help me decode, unpack, and understand this reality. How dissimilar are they? In exactly the same way with a hyper-lucid dream, you wake up from a hyper-lucid dream, you look at this and you go, is this any different? And at the highest stages of, of spiritual realization, according to many meditation masters, Milarepa, my teacher, Kempo Rinpoche, and others, you know, the highest stages of meditation, there is no difference between the mind as it expresses itself and the reality that's experienced in the dream state or in the dreamless state as there is in waking reality. This kind of ultimate um, equanimity, kind of ultimate democracy of mind, and virtual reality has that same type of potential, where you take the bloody goggles off, you look at this, and you go, hey, is this any different phenomenologically from what I just experienced? And so then it begins this incredibly important question of what, in fact, is the nature of reality? And if we don't know that, we are then held, indeed, captive by the dictates of the unconscious, non-lucid mind, which takes everything that it experiences at face value, and hence it goes non-lucid in all these domains. 
unless we think this is like an intellectual parlor game or some philosophical mumbo-jumbo, this is the basis of all our suffering. We suffer in direct proportion to how non-lucidly, to how solidly, how real we take the contents of our experience. And so VR and lucid dreaming and the like can help us by, by reifying other states of experience, the VR experience and the dream experience, by making those more real, we can then in fact make this less real. It doesn't negate it, it's not nihilistic. It still appears, the world appears, phenomena appears, it all appears, but you're no longer swept up in it, you're no longer lost in it. This is the seed of psycho-spiritual liberation. This is what the spiritual traditions talk about as the enlightened state. The display is all still there. You don't change it. You change your relationship to it. And these inner and outer technologies, in fact, have that potential. So thank you, Andrew, for that, for that wonderful unpacking and that tease into a much larger world, obviously, that you're talking about in terms of dream yoga. It's a delight, David. It's really fun to spend time with you. Um, and I would just really, for, for people who are really intrepid um, pioneers, you know, exploring the nature of their world and their mind, we now have this, you know, these amazing tools, both from the East and the West, that allow us to explore these previously dark domains of our own experience that we can bring into the light of awareness. Um, and really, I think, you know, discover profound levels of insight into uh, who we are, what this so-called reality is, and therefore allow us to eventually um, wake up to the whole shebang. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. Delight, David. Thank you. And everyone out there, there the new web course, which the links are actually on the page, so just check it out. So this is a great way to introduce yourself to Andrew's work around this, and then who knows, maybe you'll come to one of the live workshops as well. But check out the links. The web course is all there. Enjoy yourselves. Thanks.